morning. <laughs> the title of this morning's message is God's Last Will and Testament. This morning we will be continuing in chapter 9 of Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews chapter 9 for a while now. <laughs> and so far we've looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 9. We first looked at the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, all of which are types and shadows that point specifically to Jesus. And then we looked at the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, which is also a type and shadow that points directly to Jesus and his finished work. And through all of this, the author's theme continues to declare to his readers, Jesus is better! <laughs> Jesus and the New Covenant are infinitely better than Moses and the Old Covenant, because Jesus himself is better because Jesus is himself God. And God is infinitely better than any mere human vessel. So, since Jesus is God, then Jesus is an infinitely better high priest of an infinitely better covenant who ministers from an infinitely better place, a better tabernacle, heaven itself. And Jesus didn't just copy the kinds of things the high priest did under the Old Covenant. Instead, he completed and fulfilled all the types and shadows of the Old Covenant sacrifices to the extent that we no longer need to try and keep the Old Covenant laws as a means of obtaining right standing with God. In fact, the New Covenant is so much better than the Old that people find it really hard to believe just how good the New Covenant really is. So much of the body of Christ is just like these Hebrew baby believers. They are still trying to get both covenants to work together, <laughs> which is kind of like a woman trying to keep her ex-husband as a husband while she's married to a new husband. <laughs> which, of course, was completely unheard of in the Bible times. <laughs> Women were never allowed to have more than one husband at a time even though in early Bible history it was common for men to have more than one wife. But God's original intent for marriage, according to Jesus, was that it was to be a permanent covenant between two people, and only two people, which is why he only gave Adam one wife, not two. Now, the Apostle Paul makes this very point in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. I write to you, dear brothers and sisters, who are familiar with the law. Don't you know that when a person dies, it ends his obligation to the law? For example, a married couple is bound by the law to remain together until separated by death. But when one spouse dies, the other is released from the law of marriage. So then, if a wife is joined to another man while still married, she commits adultery. But if her husband dies, she is obviously free from the marriage contract and may marry another man without being charged with adultery. So, my dear brothers and sisters, the same principle applies to your relationship with God. For you died to your first husband, the law, by being co-crucified with the body of Messiah. So you are now free to marry another, the one who was raised from the dead, so that you may now bear spiritual fruit for God. When we were merely living natural lives, the law, through defining sin, actually awakened sinful desires within us, which resulted in bearing fruit, which resulted in bearing the fruit of death. 
Just tell a kid, don't touch it, and they're going to want to have to touch it. <laughs> Same principle. <laughs> but now that we have been fully released from the power of the law, we are dead to what once controlled us, both the law and sin. And our lives are no longer motivated by the obsolete way of following the written code, so that now we may serve God, worship God, by living in the freshness of a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, the Apostle Paul was making the point that legally, you know, these, these are Jews, so everything has to be legal. <laughs> so the Apostle Paul was making the point that legally, they were free from all the demands of the Old Covenant as a means of righteousness. Because they had legally and rightfully died with Christ, thereby ending their participation in the First Covenant. And they were now free to begin a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit within a new covenant with the same God through Jesus Christ, his son. This is the same point the author of Hebrews is trying to make to the Hebrew baby believers. The first covenant became completely and totally obsolete the moment Jesus died. So the Hebrew baby believers were no longer legally able to live as though they were still married to the old covenant Mr. Law. For them, it was especially important for them to be able to understand that the new covenant was actually legal, according to God. So they needed to be convinced of the spiritual effectiveness and the legality of Jesus' substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection. Now, as Gentiles, we may not struggle with the thought that Jesus' death was an illegal sin offering, but the Jews did, and many still do today. They won't believe because Jesus was human. They say God doesn't allow human sacrifice. This whole new covenant stuff isn't real. So they needed that question answered. They knew Jesus had strictly forbade human sacrifice. So if human sacrifice was illegal, then how could Jesus' sacrifice be legal in the sight of God? Well, the answer goes directly back to who Jesus really is. Jesus wasn't just a human being. Jesus was and is God himself wrapped in humanity. He was and is completely sinless. And he is the only human being who could actually qualify as the sinless, spotless lamb of God. In Christ, God himself became a human in order to redeem all of humanity out of the mess that Adam got everybody into. So God, in Christ, came as a human being in order to become our kinsman redeemer, the relative that has the means to pay the purchase price, to redeem us, to buy us out of our slavery. So as our kinsman redeemer, Jesus was a real human being. It was also a hard thing for the Jews <laughs> to get people to understand that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% human. He had to be our kinsman. He had to be a human being just like us. And Jesus was a real human being just like us, who was not under the same bondage to the law of sin and death that Adam had taken everybody into. He was the only human being born that wasn't born into the kingdom of darkness. And this is why God stopped Abraham from killing Isaac as a sacrifice and gave him a substitute ram. Isaac 
was still under the power of sin and death. Isaac wasn't outside of the bondage. So how could Isaac set those who were in bondage free? He couldn't. Isaac was still under the power of sin and death, and his death would simply have been justice, the law of sin and death. Sin brings forth death. That's just, God says. So if Isaac died, there would be no reconciliation, no atonement that would come about on behalf of Isaac's death. That's just justice. That's just the law working. <laughs> but the ram had no moral code to break. Animals were considered morally neutral. They weren't good and they weren't evil. They were just neutral. They didn't have a moral consciousness. So God says, I've given you animals as a way to atone for your sin because they're morally neutral. As a substitute, it was acceptable to God because it was morally innocent. It had no guilt. Now, the only problem with this sacrifice and the entire sacrificial system was that it didn't actually take away sin. It didn't actually get the worshipers out from underneath the power of sin and death. It just enabled God to bless them in their fallen state and enabled them to approach God as their friend, Abraham in particular. <laughs> so we can see from the story of Abraham and Isaac that a mere fallen human being was not an acceptable sacrifice to God for sin, ever. Which is why God forbade the Israelites from offering their innocent babies as sacrifices. If you needed an innocent sacrifice, surely babies would qualify. <laughs> Even though the babies were not guilty of any kind of sin, they were still under the power of sin and death. They were still in Adam, and therefore they were disqualified to be an atoning sacrifice. So, if no fallen human being could redeem any of the other fallen human beings out of the slavery to sin, and animal sacrifices could never actually take away sin, then who on earth could pay the sin debt of humanity and set us free from the power of sin and death? Only God himself. Because he is the only being that was not under the power of sin and death. So, the eternal God united himself with finite humanity for the express purpose of providing the finite humanity with the eternal life of God. So only Jesus, being both God and man, could provide the only eternally effective sacrifice for sin. And we can see this in verse 12 of chapter 9. I have it for you in the American Standard Version, and I'll begin reading with verse 11. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come in the new covenant, <laughs> through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having already obtained eternal redemption. Now, as you can see, already is in red, <laughs> and that means I added it. <laughs> but I added it because that's what it's talking about. When Jesus entered heaven, he had already obtained our eternal redemption. Jesus did not need to take physical blood into the Holy of Holies in heaven because Jesus didn't die in order to cover our sins. 
like they did under the old covenant. Instead, Jesus actually paid all of humanity's sin debt in full. He took sin into death and he left it there. <laughs> and then he rose from the dead to prove that he is who he said he was and that he accomplished what he said he accomplished. Also, one of the reasons I chose to begin with this particular version of the Bible is because they correctly translated the word through. According to the Strong's Concordance, the word in this scripture that says through is dia, D-I-A, dia. And it simply means it's a primary position denoting the channel of an act, through. It doesn't mean with. It means through. By means of this, through this. But you'd be surprised how many other translations change the word through to the word with, which means something completely different. With means he took his blood with him into the Holy of Holies, his physical blood, in order to cover over our sins. Jesus' sacrifice was not a way to continue to defer payment for sin. Jesus' sacrifice was the means of God actually paying the debt on behalf of all mankind. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. He meant it. <laughs> the payment was made in full. All of the work of the Day of Atonement was completely finished in Christ on the cross. Jesus did not go to hell for three days to pay for sin. And he did not need to sprinkle his blood on the heavenly mercy seat, which is the very throne of God in heaven, because Jesus is the mercy seat. <laughs> he is the place where God is satisfied and made happy. That all of humanity's sin has been paid for once and for all. And now all of humanity can freely come to God the Father through faith in God the Son. So when we see the phrase, the blood of Christ in Scripture, it actually refers to the death of Christ. There isn't anything magical or mystical about the physical blood of Jesus. Now, I understand his blood was different than other human beings because his blood was sinless. But his blood was also entirely human, or it wouldn't have been effective. He is our representative. He had to be our kinsman redeemer. He had to be a human just like us. So they would understand how hard it is to be a human. <laughs> because his blood was sinless, he was a pure human. The only pure human who could carry the sin of all mankind into death. And then rise up out of it. I love this because so much of the church doesn't understand that Jesus did not become sinful. There's a scripture that says, and he became sin, that we might become righteous. It's not talking about sinfulness. The word sin is also a euphemism for a sin offering. In the Old Testament, when they laid their hand on the innocent little morally neutral lamb, it became sin. Did it become sinful? No, because the whole point is that it's innocent. Okay? See, it became a carrier. <laughs> a carrier to take sin and guilt and shame all the way into death. That was the whole point. That's the picture. Death could not hold Jesus down because death is only effective where there is sin. And Jesus had none. Jesus was morally perfect. 
So the author here in chapter 9 is comparing the effectiveness of the death or blood of animals with the effectiveness of the blood or death of Christ. So continuing in verse 13, I've switched over to the Passion Translation because it's very (laughs) self-explanatory. Beginning with 13. Under the Old Covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer were sprinkled on those who were defiled and effectively cleansed them outwardly from their ceremonial impurities. It didn't change anything on the inside of them. Yet how much more will the sacred blood of the Messiah thoroughly cleanse our consciences, (laughs) the inside of us, (laughs) by the power of the eternal spirit? He offered himself, his entire self, not just his blood, his entire self. He offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice and now frees us from our dead works to worship and serve the living God. And dead works are all the things you do to try to get God to like you. (laughs) They don't produce life. Only Holy Spirit produces life in and through us. Good works don't produce life. Verse 15. So Jesus is the one who has enacted a new covenant with a new relationship with God so that those who accept the invitation will receive the eternal inheritance he has promised to his heirs. For he died to release us from the guilt of the violations committed under the first covenant. We have to remember that the author is addressing Jewish believers, not us. Jewish believers who were struggling to understand that the old covenant really was completely obsolete, didn't work anymore. So these Hebrew baby believers needed to understand that Jesus' sacrifice is applicable for all sin, for all time, even the sins of Israel under the Old Covenant. They were trying to figure out, how does this work? Under the Old, you have a sin, you get a lamb. And it was continuous. You have a sin, you get a lamb. You have a sin, you take an offering. You have a so they're like, okay, if Jesus died for everything, Don't we have to do what the Old Covenant did? Don't we need to take another lamb? Because even after you get saved, you fall short of God's glorious perfection. (laughs) And so they were like, oh, we're guilty again. We're dirty again. So the author is trying to convince them about the eternally effectiveness of the Lamb of God, that it's different. And this covenant works completely different than the Old. This is the same message the church needs today, 2,000 years later. (laughs) because Christians keep wanting God to forgive them again and again and again and again instead of understanding he forgave you he took death into sin and then he plucked you up and put you in a whole different kingdom where sin doesn't affect you it no longer has the ability to separate you from your father now it'll affect your life (laughs) Apostle Paul was very clear don't be stupid (laughs) it doesn't work out well (laughs) but even if you're stupid It will never separate you from who you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice actually paid the sin debt of all of Israel, whose sin debt was previously charged to God's account. That's what the, the lambs were for. They didn't actually pay for sin. It was a credit card. Those cute little fuzzy lambs were a credit card transaction, which I love that picture. 
Can't you just see one of us going into Walmart with our sheep and saying, here, run this through the credit card machine. <laughs> That's exactly what they were doing. They were charging their debt. It was being paid momentarily until it could actually be paid by Jesus. Their sins were never actually removed from them, which was the problem. <laughs> God never expected that a man could pay for his own sin debt by being good. That being good somehow is going to make God like me more. <laughs> No, you can't make God like you more. You can't make God love you more. You can't make God enjoy you more. You're his, you're his, you're his. <laughs> we don't have to earn his favor. They did. <laughs> because everything was exterior. For us, everything is interior. God knew that being good never caused sins to be atoned for. Which is why God gave them the sacrificial system. He knew they couldn't keep the law. <laughs> and he knew they would always be falling short of his glorious perfection and they would needed a way to at least defer the payment. And the payment was death. So these little, sweet, morally innocent lambs had to die so they would carry, in a prophetic picture, the sin away from them. We can see this truth in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Again, in the Passion Translation. Yet, through his powerful declaration of acquittal, in other words, he has declared us innocent, God freely gives away his righteousness. What? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> God freely gives away his righteousness, his right standing, his gift of love and favor now cascades over us. Because Jesus, the anointed one, has liberated us from the guilt and punishment and power of sin. Jesus' God-given destiny was to be the sacrifice to take away sin. And now he is our mercy seat because of his death on the cross. We come to him for mercy, for God has made a provision for us to be forgiven by faith in the sacred blood of Jesus, the sacred death of Christ. This is the perfect demonstration of God's justice. Because until now, he had been so patient, holding back his justice out of his tolerance for us, so he covered over the sins of those who lived prior to Jesus. It was all put on God's credit card, because no man alone could ever pay the debt. Jesus' sacrifice was so powerful that it was even retroactive. It actually paid for the sin debt from Adam forward. His life paid the sin debt that all of mankind had incurred. So the ones who had their little sheepies going through the credit card transaction machine, they were counted as if they were in right standing with God. They were counted as if the debt was paid. But it was insufficient. It wasn't enough. God wanted more for them. Verse 15. So, Jesus is the one who has enacted a new covenant with a new relationship with God so that those who accept the invitation will receive the eternal inheritance that he has promised to his heirs. For he died to release us from the guilt of violations committed under the first covenant. 
under the first covenant, not every sin was forgivable. You committed adultery, they killed you. Sin brings forth death. Some things were not redeemable under the old covenant. I've underlined in this verse the promise to the heirs, and I've highlighted the word covenant. Because in order to understand what the author is talking about, we need to understand how he uses the words covenant and testament. In the Greek, they are the exact same word. But he uses this word in two different ways, which is why translators usually try to differentiate one from another. Sometimes, depending on the version, just use the word covenant, and sometimes they'll just use the word testament. And then you have those other versions that use covenant and testament. (laughs) Because the author is using the same word in a different way. And that's how it should be translated. He's using the same word, but he's using it in a different way. So they change the word in the translation. According to the Strong's Concordance, both the English words covenant and testament are the Greek word diatheke. (laughs) It means properly, in the strictest sense, a disposition. That is specifically a contract, especially a divisory will. And it's translated either covenant or testament. When we understand that when we see the word covenant, for God, it's always going to be a testament. It's his will. (laughs) That's what the testament is to express, the Father's wishes. So the biblical understanding of the word covenant means exactly that, covenant. It's an agreement entered into willingly, like David and Jonathan, where two parties promise faithfulness to the terms of the covenant to the best of their ability. This is really what we understand what we call a marriage covenant, where two people voluntarily commit themselves to the promises that they make to love, honor, and cherish until death they do part. And then everything they own becomes the property of the other, and the two become united as one. But the Greek word for this kind of covenant would be suntheke, which is a Greek word for a covenant between two equals. Is there any human being on earth that is equal to God? No. (laughs) That's not the kind of covenant he makes. When he makes covenant, it's all his idea and it's all on his terms. And it is very much like him writing out a will. This word, suntheke, is not found anywhere in the New Testament because it's a secular idea, not a biblical idea. Diatheke is a term the New Testament uses to explain what kind of covenant we are partakers of with God. It is non-negotiable. God doesn't make deals. (laughs) God, (laughs) if I give money to the church, is it okay if I sin? It used to be a thing. (laughs) In order to raise money, a very prominent church throughout the world would let you buy sin. (laughs) Yep, they did. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, God never makes a deal. (laughs) It's always a way of God expressing his will for his people. So we had no part in making any covenant as humans. The new covenant was brought to completion, and even in the old one, brought to completion without our say-so. God never asked us if it was a good idea. 
<laughs> he said, this is what I'm going to do for you. You can receive your inheritance or not, but I'm going to provide it for you. So God, by his own hand, through Jesus, instituted the new covenant that is entirely based on God's grace and faithfulness, not on our grace and faithfulness. That was the old covenant. In the Greek vernacular of that day, diatheke meant testament, as in last will and testament, in which the one making the will expresses how his assets should be distributed after his death. Hmm. <laughs> what has our Father left to us? So the new covenant is God's way of giving mankind access to everything God is and access to everything in his kingdom. And he did it this way to make sure that as sons of God and heirs of God, we would never be able to lose our Father's blessing, favor, and power because of our own stupidity or weakness. But our Father's last will and testament could only be executed and made available to the heirs of salvation, us, after his death. So, did God die? Yes and no. <laughs> we have to remember that God became a man for the express purpose of being able to die in our place. Is he God? Yes. Is he man? Yes. Physically, he had to be a human in order to die, to pay our sin debt. As we saw earlier, Jesus had an eternal spirit. He was still God in his spirit. And that which is eternal can never die. So, yes, Jesus, the God-man, physically died. But his spirit didn't. Because his spirit is eternal life. So, his blood, though human, has an eternal effect. Because Jesus wasn't only human, he was also God. Now, we need to remember that death is not the end of someone's existence. Death is simply a doorway into the spiritual realm where God lives, which is wonderful for those of us who have received Jesus and his eternal life. But for those who have rejected our Father's last will and testament, they will find themselves on the receiving end of judgment. And we can see this in verse 27 of chapter 9. Every human being is appointed to die once. This is good. We will not have to do it over and over again. <laughs> and then face God's judgment. Now, for the believer, this is good news. This is not bad news for a believer. Only our works will be judged. And only for the sake of receiving our Father's praise. He's going, yeah, you did it good. <laughs> He's not going to bring up all the times we missed. <laughs> because all of our sins have been removed from us. Our imperfect works will not be judged. Only the things we did in and through Christ, so that he can reward us and praise us and demonstrate how proud he is of us as his kids. Unbelievers, however, <laughs> will not be so happy, <laughs> especially when they realize that it was always the Father's great desire to give them, as a free gift of his grace, his very own eternal life and his entire kingdom. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom as a gift. But you have to do it on this side of death's door. 
Whatever we are on this side of death's door is what we will be on the other side of death's door. If we are a sheep, we will be a sheep. If we are a goat, we will be a goat. And we won't like it. <laughs> In our Father's last will and testament, he left humanity everything they need for life and godliness as a gift of his grace so that humanity could freely partake of God and his goodness by faith in the finished work of Jesus. The author continues to make this point in the following verses, 16 and 17, in the Passion. Now, a person's last will and testament can only take effect after one has been proven to have died. Otherwise, the will cannot be enforced while the person who made it is alive. If you're in Aunt Harriet's will, you can't just go and take whatever you want from Aunt Harriet's house. <laughs> you got to wait for Aunt Harriet <laughs> to pass on. <laughs> At least legally, anyway. <laughs> One of the reasons Jesus needed to stay in the grave for three days was because at that time in history, people weren't considered beyond the realm of physical life until they had been dead for three days. That was just their understanding of the spiritual things. There was a chance you could come back if it hadn't been three days. So why did Jesus have to be in the grave for three days? He had to prove he was actually dead. <laughs> because that was one of the problems after he had arisen. Oh, he wasn't really dead. See, no. Three days. The apostles needed to be able to convince those who had not yet been convinced that Jesus was who he was and he did what he said he did and he was thoroughly and completely dead. <laughs> because in order for God's new last will and testament, the new covenant, to come into effect, Jesus needed to prove that he was actually dead. Therefore, three days. So being in the grave for three days was the proof that the one who wrote the will was really dead, and therefore the heirs mentioned in the will could then legally go and raid Aunt Harriet's house. <laughs> Got a legal document. It's done. Freely partake of what whoever has left you something. So our Father has left us himself and his kingdom. It's all for us. It's all ours. Verse 18. So this is why not even the first covenant was inaugurated without the blood of animals. Again, that's why they took the blood into the Holy of Holies. It was evidence that a death of a substitute had taken place. It was blood evidence. The blood was the evidence and the proof that a death had taken place on their behalf and that the blessings in favor of God were now freely available to those who had faith in God and his will and testament, both for the old and for the new. For Moses ratified the covenant after he gave the people all his commandments of the law. He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and a hyssop branch, and sprinkled both the people and the book, saying, This is the blood, this is the testament that God commands you to keep. Again, the blood was the evidence that God's first will under the Old Testament his first will and testament was now valid. It wasn't valid until something died. There was no atonement. There was no forgiveness until something died. The debt had to be paid in that moment, even if it was just temporary. 
And later, Moses also sprinkled the tabernacle with blood and every utensil and item used in their service of worship. Everything had to be cleansed by innocent blood because everything had been contaminated by man's sinfulness. So God had them cleanse everything with blood and set everything apart as belonging to God for his glory and his purposes. 22. Actually, nearly everything under the law was purified with blood since forgiveness only comes through an outpouring of blood. Their law-keeping didn't make them right with God, no matter how perfectly they kept it. They still needed a blood substitute. Forgiveness under the Old Testament was only temporary forgiveness because it only cleansed people from their guiltiness of their sinful actions. It never cleansed them inwardly. It never changed a fallen human being into a godly human being, which is why God was never satisfied with the Old Testament. God always wanted to live as one with his human beings and have them continuously experience his grace and his goodness at all times. But mankind was still spiritually a prisoner of the kingdom of darkness. So God, in his goodness, gave them an umbrella of grace, the sacrificial system whereby they could, by faith in the blood of the Lamb, live under God's favor while they were still in the prison of darkness. A little umbrella with its own light. <laughs> they could walk in the light. They could walk in God's goodness because of the blood of the sacrifice, even while they were still living in darkness. The sacrifice was God's way of letting them pay their sin debt, which was death, while still remaining physically alive which was great, but not sufficient. They could experience God's goodness, but not God's life. They couldn't experience God himself. They could only experience what he could provide. And God said, that's not good enough. I want you to have me. I want you to know me. I want you to have life and life more abundantly. Verse 23. And so it was necessary for all the earthly symbols of the heavenly realities to be purified with these animal sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves required a superior sacrifice than these. Adam and Eve didn't realize that all of creation would be affected by their sin. The law of sin and death reached farther than just themselves. It reached into the very heavenly realm. You know, the law of sin and death is still active on the moon. Still active on Mars and Venus and Pluto. And it doesn't matter how far you go, the law of sin and death in this whole entire universe was still at work. They had no idea how far-reaching sin was. Mankind doesn't know how fallen he is. <laughs> he thinks he's pretty good, you know, not so bad. <laughs> he has no idea how far-reaching the power of sin was. Now, the author doesn't explain this verse. He leaves it for us to know, either from the Jewish leaders or to come to our own conclusions. But I think this could be a hint as to why Satan was cast out of heaven and denied further access to God in his domain when Jesus went to the cross. Because Jesus' sacrifice 
cleansed all of creation. Everything God made had been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And Satan doesn't have dominion over us anymore. And that's because the death or the blood of Christ has cleansed everything that belongs to God. That includes us and even heaven itself. And we can see this same concept over in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 18. Again, the Passion Translation. We are convinced that everyone fathered by God does not make sinning a way of life because the Son of God protects the child of God and the evil one cannot touch him. In other words, the evil one, Satan, cannot touch us or spiritually contaminate us with his sin because he cannot touch or contaminate God, and that's who lives in us. Jesus has already completely destroyed all of Satan's power, and he has already translated us safely into our Father's kingdom where Satan cannot go, because his blood or death is that of the God-man, the man who is both God and man, Christ. Verse 24. For the Messiah did not enter into the earthly tabernacle made by men. He would have been in big trouble had he tried, (laughs) which was but an echo of the true sanctuary. But he entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God in our place. Again, he presented himself to the Father, not a bowl of blood. No man had ever entered into heaven before Jesus did. And Jesus is the only reason that any man can. We can only approach the throne of grace because we are always and forever in Christ Jesus. We have already been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son where we are spiritually safe. Safe, safe, safe. He can't get us. (laughs) That's what the word sozo, salvation, means. Safe. (laughs) We are spiritually safe forever. So neither we nor Satan can undo what Jesus has done for us as us and to us. It can't be undone. Verse 25. Under the old system, year after year, the high priest entered the most holy sanctuary with blood that was not his own. But the Messiah did not need to repeatedly offer himself year after year. For that would mean that he must suffer repeatedly ever since the fall of the world. But now he has appeared at the fulfillment of the ages to abolish sin once and for all, by the sacrifice of himself. This is the reality that so many believers today have not yet been able to believe. Just like these Hebrew baby believers, all sin has already been dealt with by Christ. All at once. Jesus is not up in heaven pouring blood over the throne of grace over and over and over again when we fall short of our Father's glorious perfection. Because his sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice of the God-man. His blood, his death, gave mankind eternally effective forgiveness. In other words, sin is no longer able to spiritually separate us from our Father or his kingdom. We are now literally the children of God. We are his heirs. And everything he is and everything he has, he has left to us. (laughs) We are not poor. (laughs) Our daddy is rich. (laughs) And through Jesus, he has already granted us everything we need for life and godliness 
through his great and precious promises. And we can appropriate what we need by faith in his promises. All of the promises of God are yes and amen to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sin can separate us from some good things that God wants us to have, but it can never again separate us from our Father, our Jesus, or our Holy Spirit. Everything the Old Covenant had the Jews do was to give them access to God. That's what it did for them. It gave them access to God and his goodness and his favor. That's what Jesus did for us on an eternal basis. We forever have been changed, always have access to our Father and our Jesus. The terms of our Father's last will and testament says that we are entitled, we have the right <laughs> to go to God's house and get whatever we want. <laughs> because he's already left it to us. We are entitled to partake of Christ and his eternal life and his righteousness and his holiness and his goodness and his unfair favor all the days of our life here on earth. Yes, God gives us his favor. It's not fair. <laughs> it's grace. But not only here on earth, but throughout all eternity. Our relationship with our Father and our Jesus doesn't end with physical death. We continue on living in Christ forever. When we go through the doorway that we call death, and we enter into the very throne room of heaven, physically speaking, we will have no reason to fear seeing the very face of our Father in the face of our God-man, Jesus. Because all of our sins were judged by God the Father in the body of the God-man, Jesus. When the Jews brought their lambs for sacrifice, the worshiper was never inspected. They didn't say, well, we can't take your sheep yet. Let's see if you're clean. Let's see if you've done what we think you ought to have done. God never inspected man because God knew. <laughs> it was a waste of time. <laughs> Guess what? It's still a waste of time to inspect us, to try to look for sin. Our lamb was perfect. He is perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice that perfectly saves. So we don't have to worry about God seeing our sin, all that nonsense. They're never charged to our account. They're already all charged to Jesus' account, and he's already prepaid it. <laughs> so if we fall short, Prepaid. <laughs> Hebrews 9, verse 27. Every human being is appointed to die once and then to face God's judgment. Again, that's a good thing for us. 28. But when we die, we will be face to face with Christ, the one who experienced death once for all to bear the sins of many. And now, to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to bring us the fullness of salvation. Now, sometimes Christians get a little worried about this word many. Bear the sins of many. Because they're like, oh, I thought he died for all. <laughs> he did. Very clear. Scripture is very clear. Jesus died for the whole world. But the whole world doesn't want him. That's the sad part. So that's why it uses the many instead of the all. 
Now, this idea of a second coming. We have to remember that he's not talking to us today. He's talking to them back then. The author of Hebrews could not have been speaking to his readers about what we understand as the physical return of Christ. He said he's going to appear a second time. And a lot of eschatology experts say this is referring to the second return of Christ. But it didn't happen back there, did it? No. <laughs> so that can't be what he's talking about. We always have to remember that this letter was not written to us, but to struggling Hebrew believers who were alive at that time in history, who were undergoing severe persecution just for believing in Jesus. And they were trying to find a way out of the persecution. So many of them had already gone back into Judaism so they could hide, <laughs> not realizing when exactly the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem would happen. So they went back into Judaism thinking they're going to be safe until Jesus physically comes again. But what happened was those who went back and stayed in there died with all the other unbelieving Jews. Now there is a historian, Josephus, who says not one Christian died in the destruction of Jerusalem because they took heed to what Jesus had said that there would be a salvation available to them, but it was going to be a physical salvation, a physical safety. And that's what they were looking for. They're looking for a way out of the hard place. <laughs> and he says, it, just be faithful. Don't go running back into Judaism because they're all going to die. You won't be saving your own life. Stay faithful to Christ. And Christ will bring about your deliverance and salvation. Which is exactly what he did. Jesus had promised that those who persevered in faith until the end of the Mosaic age would be saved. He wasn't talking about their spiritual salvation, but their physical salvation. Just like Peter, when he walked on water, he wasn't saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. He's like, no, Jesus, keep me from drowning. <laughs> I need a physical salvation. <laughs> this is the Hebrew baby believers. They needed a physical salvation. The author understands that if you're going to get someone to believe in a physical salvation, especially if they're Jewish, you've got to convince them that they're spiritually safe. Because they knew if God was mad at you, <laughs> under the old covenant, it, you were done. Okay, so that's why they kept bringing lambs to the temple even after they believed on Jesus. They didn't understand how effective his perfect sacrifice was. So that's why the author is spending so much time trying to convince them that the new covenant is better and that Jesus is better, that it's a perfect, eternal salvation. And if you have that, the will and testament, the person has died, whatever they left you is really yours. We might have to wait a little while to take hold of it, but just keep believing and it's going to show up because your father has left it to you in his will. It belongs to you. So that's what he's trying to convince these Hebrew babies. I know it's hard. We all go through hard sometimes. <laughs> we don't like hard. Neither did they. <laughs> so they were looking for an escape. God had an escape plan for them, but they had to walk it out by faith. 
the author is trying very hard to convince them of this spiritual truth so that they would stop trying to get a forgiveness they already had. Doesn't that sound familiar? Me, I'm nearsighted, and I would take my glasses off when I was doing some other things, and I'd put them on my head. And I would do my stuff, and then all of a sudden I need to see up close. <laughs> and like, where did I put those glasses? I can't tell you how many times I did this. <laughs> I stopped, eventually stopped putting them on my head, because I couldn't find them anywhere. <laughs> Until I would walk past the mirror and it's like, oh my gosh, how silly. <laughs> but this is exactly what Christians do. God, where's my forgiveness? I need you to forgive me. And he's like, right there on your head. <laughs> the kingdom is all yours, baby girl. They're right there on your head. You've already got it. But I lived 25 years like these Hebrew baby believers, always trying, always working so hard to make God like me and approve of me. Because I was told the new covenant was just like the old. And it's not. It never was. The God-man has provided a perfect salvation by a perfect sacrifice. The, his death is the evidence that our Father has left everything to us. All of his goodness, all of his power, all of his strength, all of his love, all of his righteousness, everything God is and everything God has belongs to us, his heirs. I always found that my lack of perfection was always ruining my faith. You fall short of God's perfection, Satan's right there to tell you what a failure you are. <laughs> See, you're not righteous. See, you failed God's man. See, go to your room. <laughs> My room is heaven, thank you very much. <laughs> but I found that the unbelief caused by not understanding my eternal salvation would ruin my ability to take hold of what my Father had given me freely. It ruined my faith because we don't trust people we think are mad at us. And if we think God is mad at us for failing, we won't trust him. So that's why the author is working so hard to convince these Hebrew believers it really is an eternal forgiveness. It is the Father's last will and testament, and he's left it all to you. When we begin to believe how righteous we are and how finished the work of our salvation is, we will find faith comes a lot easier. We can more easily believe because it's no longer based on how I behave. It's based on the fact that Jesus was the God-man and the perfect sacrifice. And because he died, everything belongs to me in and through him. Our faith is activated when our hearts are completely assured that no matter what comes, no matter how badly I fail, and no matter how often I fail, my Father loves me and accepts me right where I am and just as I am. Because in my spirit, I am just like Jesus. This is why the author of Hebrews is giving these immature believers reasons to believe that the salvation that Jesus provided is far and away better than anything the Old Covenant ever provided. 
The author of Hebrews wants his readers to be convinced in their hearts that Jesus, all by himself, is more than enough to provide us with both our spiritual and physical salvation. Because our Father has already granted it to us in his last will and testament. And we are legally able to partake of all that our Father is and all that our Father has. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, for these Hebrew beta believers. <laughs> that their struggles are so much like believers today. Not understanding just how perfect Jesus is as our atoning sacrifice and all that he accomplished through what he has done on our behalf. We thank you, Father God, for the truth of your word that is able to activate the faith that you've already placed in us so that we can more easily believe and receive all that you have already left us in your will. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much, Father, for your great love. We thank you so much for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE G-I-V-E to 833-632-1315 or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.